Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. I never heard about Gab before 11 people were shot and killed Saturday at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. The social media network was created in San Mateo, but the CEO, Andrew Torba, thinks of Silicon Valley as an enemy. You had people like Andrew Torba saying, you know, we should set up a site where politically left ideas of what is appropriate speech will not apply. KQED's Rachel Myra has been looking into Silicon Valley's role in policing hate speech online and how trying to solve the problem may just be pushing it somewhere else. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to The Bay. Do you ever do anything to prevent doxing or to prevent uh, people saying hateful things to you or you kind of using your persona online against you? I think uh, <laughs> my actual personality is not that distant from my public media mm-hmm. personality, which is, you know, the mild-mannered, professorial, almost like an English <laughs> teacher reporter. And and I do think that kind of protects me from some of the oh. most virulent attacks. Yeah. This is Rachel Myro. She covers Silicon Valley for KQED. For the most part, I have been treated with a remarkable uh, amount of civility, even from people who don't agree with me. And I'll, I'll admit, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot. And if I get something that sounds either like it's a bot or a crackpot, I'll just block that account. Starting in 2016, Twitter really began trying to crack down on all of that. On Monday, Ghostbusters actor Leslie Jones quit Twitter following a series of racist and sexist attacks. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey reached out to Jones directly and the social media company promised to take action. Leslie Jones had to call out Twitter on its own platform before Dorsey reached out. One day later, Milo Yiannopoulos, a conservative writer for Breitbart.com, was permanently suspended from Twitter. Twitter has gone on to ban more and more users for hate speech, which has left some looking elsewhere to say whatever they want. You had people like Andrew Torbuck saying, well, 
you know, we should set up an alternative, a, a site where uh, politically left ideas of what is appropriate speech will not apply. So it's appealing to people who want to talk about things that might get them either temporarily or permanently banned off other social media platforms. Well, let's talk about some of the basic rules about what you can and cannot do online. From a legal perspective, the U.S. Supreme Court has fairly consistently come down in favor of free speech. But that has to do, for the most part, with public environments. And if you're talking about Twitter or you're talking about Facebook or Gab or any of these other private platforms, they are within their rights to control according to the terms of their service. It's not a legal gray area, but it it is a, a gray area in terms of who determines what is unacceptable. And so you're saying like these private companies, these private social media companies, because they are private, they have the choice to block somebody or to take something that they've said down. And that's not regulated by the federal government. Exactly. What's interesting to me about what's happening uh, at UC Berkeley's D-Lab with their online hate index is they're trying to find a way to tackle hate speech that isn't proprietary. My name is Claudia von Vacano, and I'm the executive director of the D-Lab in Digital Humanities at Berkeley. The D-Lab is interested in coming up with a system that is completely public completely transparent and also drawing from hate speech screeners from all over the world. So that the public can investigate and be invested and help us in furthering the understanding of uh, hate speech as a linguistic phenomena. What's interesting about what they're trying to do is expand the pool of available talent, if you will, to discuss What constitutes hate speech? How do you define it? How do different people define it in different contexts? Because it's a very, very fluid thing. You're absolutely right that there's um, really unique ways that this speech impacts each of us. Let's talk about that that contextual element to hate speech, because I think that's really important. Um, what, What do we know about the ways people are using hate speech online and, and who's determining what hate speech is? So um, I heard about this concept, this phrase, uh, shrinky dinks, which some anti-Semitic posters are using to refer to Jews. It's, it's a really sort of in-group, uh, arcane phrase. You would really have to know that they were referencing the Holocaust through a 1980s toy. And uh, I mean, I was just stunned that this would be some kind of an anti-Semitic slur. Basically, you put it in the oven, right? So the implication being that Jews were put in the ovens in the Holocaust. And so people are It's horrendous, right? Like, uh, your thinking wouldn't go there. Certainly if you weren't... uh, weren't uh, an anti-Semite. Certainly, even if, you know, I'm Jewish, I didn't get that. Right. Uh, But but I think if you were not Jewish and you were not an anti-Semite, you would have no idea that you were looking at basically a code phrase that is hate speech.
uh, I guess people are using these really obscure um, metaphors in a lot of ways. Um, They're dog whistles. What yeah. we're talking about are, are, are phrases and words that are dog whistles to a very specific group of people. Artificial intelligence, for example, I know that's a big part of the conversation in terms of trying to recognize and potentially prevent hate speech. Is that not something at this point that AI can do? Well, artificial intelligence is getting increasingly better uh, at being able to flag what humans tell it to flag. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg talked about this to Congress back in April. Hate speech, I am optimistic that over a five to 10 year period, we will have AI tools that can uh, get into some of the nuances, the linguistic nuances of, of, of different types of content to be more accurate in flagging things for our systems. But today we're just not there on that. The software is pretty sophisticated, but it's also as limited as its human input is limited. And so on, on Saturday, after a man shot up a synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, we found out the alleged shooter is this man named Robert Bowers. And he'd been posting hateful messages on Gab. Do we know if Robert Bowers should have been caught? That's a good question. You know, all the reporting that I have been doing in the last year about artificial intelligence and hate speech screening uh, has not indicated a way for machine learning or human intelligence to determine when somebody is just mouthing off or imminently going to pick up a gun and attack people. So I understand that Twitter and, and Facebook, these are like private platforms. But in a way, I feel like the comments that people make on, on Twitter and Facebook are very public. And we use these platforms as almost a public space to have these, these conversations. Should we be thinking about this differently? Is there a way to think about this differently so that we recognize these spaces as being more public? Well, the, there are genuine disagreements as to how to respond to the very real-world consequences of the toxic conversations people are having online. And I, I think we've come to a place in our culture where we accept that moderation is necessary for for any group conversation that's happening, whether it's in person or online. But on the flip side... To what extent do you police the conversation uh, in such a way that you drive away uh, people who want to have conversations that are harmful to others? I had a very interesting, provocative conversation with the past president of the ACLU, Nadine Strawson. She's a professor now at the New York Law School. None of us should kid ourselves that either human beings or algorithms or artificial intelligence are going to solve um, the unavoidable problem here. Her argument is that it's incredibly dangerous to isolate or slough off people like Robert Bowers to these dark corners of the internet uh, because then we don't know what's happening. We're, we're not aware, we're not paying attention, if you will, to what's up with people like him. 
This is an inherently dangerous project that is simply going to wield, give even more power to these companies that are exerting increasing power over all of our communications. And I think um, none of us should kid ourselves that either human beings or algorithms or artificial intelligence are going to solve um, the unavoidable problem here. I'm a great believer in the idea that we're constantly socializing and re-socializing each other. We're constantly defining and establishing what morality is. I think morality is fluid, and so in a sense, it's kind of our collective responsibility to, to keep re-socializing each other, to, to maintain uh, social decorum and basic human decency. I was really curious how I'd feel after talking to you about this conversation, and I didn't know if I'd feel optimistic or pessimistic, and I think I feel a little bit terrified. (laughs) I feel (laughs) like I didn't know, like, I understood that people who were being silenced on other platforms were going to places like Gab to be heard, and that there were these communities, but I think I feel like I don't want to silence people like that because I want to know what they're thinking. But I also think it is a very toxic thing. And like, how far do we let these types of people into the conversation before it's, it's more harmful? I don't know. There's another possibility, which is that when those people speak in broader, more quote unquote mainstream conversations, that they're influencing other people or they're normalizing certain ideas which should not be normalized. Gab lost its internet service provider, its platform provider. If you go to Gab now, what you'll find is a statement, a letter from the founder, Andrew Torba, explaining that they have been, as he puts it, de-platformed. On the one hand, we need spaces where we can live our lives without people constantly spewing hate. On the other hand, pushing Robert Bowers to places like Gab doesn't fix the real problem that people are racist and hateful online, and that could turn into physical violence. The Bay Area plays a role in this, beyond just being the home to Silicon Valley. We're also a place that casts out people with views like Robert Bowers, and then a place that gets angry when he shows up later somewhere else. Rachel Myro covers Silicon Valley for KQED. You can find her story at kqed.org. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for The Bay. Talk to you Friday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.